this is one of my favorite times of the whole time. And I see different people bursting out in a smile too. So I'm thinking it's your favorite time of today or of this very time. And I say, oh, there's Heidi, that's great. There's Dwayne, there's Nancy. There's a bunch of people that I don't, that I know, Sybil, I don't know, but there she is. So I'll know her, I hope sometime soon. And Melinda and let's see, and Pamela Lear, who I know for a long time. Let's see, let's see, let's see, let's see. This is a this is a meditation also, I'd like to tell you. As you're looking and people pop up and you, you see this one and that one, and then you suddenly see someone that you know, you think, oh, there's so-and-so. Notice that you felt that in your body. You're not just knew it in your mind. You felt, this is now paying attention with the whole body. Notice if someone is smiling out of there, <laughs> smiling out of their room at you, you feel happier <laughs> to look at them. <laughs> I do. <laughs> so here we are. Let's see. We Did we finish up this whole page? Oh, we did. We have three pages, friends. Go look on the other pages and see who's there that you know. There's Mark and Larkin. And let's see. Let's see. Uh, let's see. Lots of people I don't know. That makes me thrilled because I'm thinking soon I'll know them. And let's see, now I'm on another page. Uh, okay. Oh, someone, Catherine has an old family picture. That's amazing. One of those people in that picture must be Catherine at, yeah, it's gotta be Catherine because the adults in that picture are wearing old fashioned clothing. So probably that child there is Catherine. Maybe we'll find out. Da, 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 da. <laughs> There's Victoria writing me a lovely chat saying, good morning, nice to be back. I'm thrilled to be back, you know. And one of the things about today that I'm absolutely thrilled about is I'll be back next week. Oh, there's Barbara Scavullo, who I have not seen in live since before the pandemic that I'm happy to see again. And I feel differently today. Well, every time you feel differently, you never know. And remembrance is always not so, uh, not so uh, um, definite. But uh, one of the things is as, as so far at this point, the plan is for us to be meeting again next week. So I'm really pleased about that because what it means is that I don't have to hurry. I wanna talk about something that is very interesting to me. And I think to myself, I can't fit that all in, in one morning. I think, well, I don't have to fit it all in in one morning. So how about that for relax and see what happens? Okay, look at that, look, 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 who else? Are you noticing that as people click? Oh, people in Austin. I forgot to say that. Just while, before we turn off the chat, just everybody right where they are. Everybody right where they are in the chat. And um, 
I once won a prize in a bike rally in Europe because they gave prizes to the people, oh, Los Angeles, Santa Cruz, the people who came from the longest distance. And we lived in Europe for a period of time, but we always rode Kentfield, California, and we always won the prize for having come the longest for that bike ride. Minnesota, that's wonderful. Look at that. I just feel so good about us being all over the place and that people can join us from all. Richfield Park, New Jersey. That's great, where it's already afternoon. Boulder and Malibu. That is great. All right, I'm looking. We have just about filled up three pages. If it seems to me that when one more person joins, we'll be on the fourth page. And it's 7 p.m. somewhere from Sybil. I forgot where Sybil is. Where could Sybil be? Sybil, tell us where you are, and then we'll turn off the chat, because I forgot where you are. But if it's 7 p.m., you need to be in Europe somewhere. Oh! <laughs> Read the chat now. Sophie says she's she's dialing in from Nibbana, which is the Buddhist equivalent of, of heaven, but she's actually on a yacht in the middle of San Francisco Bay. But is that not wild that somebody can be on this call with us? I mean, um, there's a, a, a psalm that uh, has the words, um, uh, what amazing things, uh, what, what, what an amazing thing this world is. Um, Alex, Alexander uh, Graham Bell said the same thing when his first telephone worked. He said, what hath God wrought? You know, it's an amazing thing to think about what people can figure out how to do. Well, now we have four pages of people in all different places. And now I'll see if I can look at everybody at the same. I don't think I can see everybody at the same time. Yes, Sophie says that the name of her yacht is Nibbana. That's a very good name of a yacht. Uh, it means a place of... Um, an untroubled mind, a completely wide open, spacious, resting, untroubled is probably the operative word, untroubled mind. Um, and somebody told me recently who it was that wrote the song line, search the world over, there's one thing you'll find, there's nothing more rare than a satisfied mind. And I said to a group of people I was teaching two weeks ago, uh, that I wanted to know who had written that line and someone wrote and someone said oh that was so 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 I said I'm so happy to know that I'm always thinking of it and I knew it and now I forgot so if you're a person who knows that search the world over there's one thing you'll find there's nothing more rare than a satisfied mind and let me know about it in the meantime what I'll do is organize myself back. Here I am. I don't think, oh, somebody says it was Tom Paxton. That's not what the person said last week, I'm sure. If it comes to you, well, if it comes to you, you'll have to um, not send it as a text now because we're going to turn off the text so we look at each other instead of the text. 
And let's take a minute. I'll be quiet. Arriving meditation this is. I won't close my eyes. I'll look at all of you or the all of you that I can see at one moment. A little bit, I'll uh, change my page so I can see another all of you. Let's look at all those people and have in my mind that we've all come together right this morning. Because all of us on some level share a belief in the idea that a satisfied mind, a contented mind, in the middle of this very life, this very body, and this very world is a possibility. Everybody's body has something well, maybe if you're very young and it's a tip-top shape and nothing. But still, we get hungry or tired or have a headache. Body is really a changeable thing. If you keep it reasonably comfortable and reasonably well treated, it's satisfied. But then it gets more and more difficult as you get older and older and parts wear out. But the Buddha's teaching and the promise that you could, through all the changes, have a mind that rested satisfied. And that everybody has a life here. And everybody might be having, you might be at a spectacular point in your life where things are all going really well for everybody that you're intimately connected with. But that's, that's just a temporary condition. And really to know how much you wish that that would stay that way and know that it's a temporal experience for now. And to be able to be okay with that. And to be able to read the newspaper or hear the news and recognize how much the world is challenged, our country is challenged, our planet is challenged, our neighborhoods, depending on where our neighborhoods are, are in varying degree of challenge. Our planet is in challenge. And in the middle of it, a satisfied mind is a possibility. It doesn't mean I like it all those difficulties. And it certainly doesn't mean I'm not doing anything to respond to any of those difficulties. It's not my business. It's everybody's business. What it means is I'm not making it a problem for me. I'm not creating suffering for myself. 
and keeping in mind this is a real world or at least it's as real as it gets from our perspective and it's a world with a great deal of karmic push behind it that's evolving day to day in the various ways it's evolving and what I do and what you do makes a difference and we can make the most felicitous difference when our minds are not clouded when our minds are resting not asleep but at ease so if you want to with your eyes closed make a wish for yourself may my mind and my body and all of my being be at ease now and with this group and then with whatever i've learned or felt here may i take it with me throughout the day and the week into the world i live in and then open your eyes and look at all the people and wish that for them may your mind be content satisfied And may you carry that contentment, wear it with you, wherever you go, into this afternoon, into tomorrow, into the world, into the rest of your life. Sometimes when we're sitting in that sort of reverie, I look down at all these papers where I've written, talk about this, talk about that. And I think to myself, is what I, <laughs> there's a dictum from the Buddha where he says, always reflect before you speak. Is what I am about to say an improvement over maintaining noble silence? So <laughs> I have to think about that. Is what I'm about to say an improvement over maintaining noble silence? I'll just assume that it is. I tried for it to be. And I put it together a lot. And I rewrote it and rewrote it and rewrote it. I had an interesting experience with it, not to be oblique about it. But I started uh, thinking about what I was going to say today. Uh, the impetus for talking about it came from um, having received in the mail uh, a book, a new book from Norman Fisher called when you greet me, I bow. And right away, I'm going to read you some parts from the beginning of it. Norman's, uh, I'm happy to say, a good friend of mine, and also a long-term study buddy and colleague in the Buddhist world together. Norman, I'm sure you know, is a Zen teacher. And uh, he's the head of a community called Everyday Zen. Uh, and maybe if I had a community, I would call it everyday mindfulness. But, um, and he's also an extraordinary writer. So I actually told him when uh, we were meeting each other yesterday, I said, you know, I'm very glad you've written this book, Norman, because since you did, I don't have to write anything else. But you're talking about all the things that I am interested in talking about. And you've said them so beautifully. You've done me the tremendous favor 
of not having to feel I have to write this for publication. You wrote it, I'll talk about it, and that's all. So, and, and I mean that very sincerely. So I'll read you some of that in a little bit. But really what he said, he starts, he starts specifically saying that when he was uh, a child, he was already preoccupied with the business of death and why does that happen and how can it be and the end of things. And so I have a, a lot to say about um, death as, um, as a, an organizing structure. When I first started in Dharma practice, when I first started in 1977 with formal retreat practice and I met my, I met my teachers, um, they said the things that I was 31 years old. And they started out by saying things like, we practice to be ready to die. I thought, wait a minute, I'm 31 years old, you know? Oh no, yes, 41 years old. But I wasn't anywhere thinking about dying at the time. I still had children I was raising, a career I was working on. And so why are we starting with that? Uh, and we'll talk more about why does it often make its presence in terms of actually thinking about death. And uh, what, I, what I realized just this very morning, taking a shower, I realized that the, the principal reason that the Buddha really stressed the issue of um, death and dying um, is that what he really was teaching was the truth about impermanence. Death is one manifestation of impermanence. That's a really a final ending to, uh, to a physical life. Although I, uh, I remember learning uh, years ago, maybe from Elizabeth Kubler-Ross or something in the days that we first started to talk about death, I remember thinking about some teacher who said, life, death ends a life. It doesn't end a relationship. It ends a life, not a relationship. And you all know that. Everybody who doesn't have a parent anymore, which I'm looking around and given the people who are here, is a lot of people. It's unusual to have a parent when you're in mature years. Some people look younger, but I haven't had a parent in a very long time. And I'm in relationship with them. I think about them all the time. But really I'm thinking about over the years that uh, when that, that first teaching about you've come here to learn about old age, sickness and death, which harkens back to a story about the Buddha learning about that and being inspired on his own physical, uh, on his own spiritual journey from that. But really I think it's, it's, it's more relevant to say, to say, not to say I'm talking about death, I'm talking about impermanence and that everything is um, everything is changing all the time. And, and in fact, the last words that the Buddha is said to have said before he died in the Paranibbana Sutta, you can look that up if you want. The last things he said, the last two sentences is transient are all conditioned things. Move into the future with confidence. 
and that itself is a as a koan as a, it's a thing to think about since everything is trans, transient and you can't hold on to anything how do you move into the future with diligence, with confidence it's like disappearing under our feet I read somewhere yesterday, this is so off the wall, but I just just popped into my mind. Uh, <laughs> someone was quoting Yogi Berra, a long ago catcher for the New York Yankees, uh, who was known for making philosophical statements that sometimes were amazingly apt for an unschooled philosophically athlete, but maybe actually wisdom. He said, um, uh, the future isn't what we thought it would be. So, you know, move on with this, move into the future with confidence. So what I wanted to do today in our meditation part, our contemplative part, was I wanted to invite you into a meditation that focuses not so much on what's happening in the breath and in the body and in the mind, as we normally do, but the transient nature of it, that uh, it's like looking at the field instead of the constituent parts. Here is breath coming in, here is breath going out, but this is beginning and ending, and the breath coming in ends, and the breath going out begins and ends, and begins and ends, and begins and ends, and thought come in, there wasn't thought before. Now I'm coming back to the breath and the thought disappears, mostly moving the focus of the lens from what's happening to really what's happening. Things are arising and passing away. Transient are all conditioned things. So we'll sit and uh, probably sit for about 20 minutes I'll give you some reminders as we go along on the way, but make yourself comfortable. Make yourself comfortable. I'd love to say to people, sit in a dignified way. One of my teachers, I don't even remember who, otherwise I would credit them, used to say, sit in a dignified way. And I love that because it, it wasn't so much as an instructor for me, an instruction in... Um, posture as an instruction in prepared to hear what's happening. It's like the sage is about to speak. The sage is one's own mind, but is about to speak. And here I'm coming at it in an alert way. Here I am, explain to me, how does the world work? And how can I live with a mind that rests peacefully moment to moment in the midst of a complex world? So sit with dignity. And at least to begin with, if you're comfortable, close your eyes.
really the only instruction is be alert. Be alert. If your body is not in pain from something that distracts your attention, and if your mind is not contracted in pain, Let the attention rest. To begin with, with phenomena associated with the physical body, like the movements of your body in response to breath moving in and out. Consistently and reliably, as long as we're alive, Breath goes in and breath goes out. If we're well, if our lungs are operating well, and if the air around us is breathable, air that nourishes, that reliable exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide continues breath after breath as long as we're alive. We measure that someone is no longer alive when breathing isn't happening. So notice the movements of your body that are responses to breath. Some people notice that their chest expands and then their chest comes back, relaxes to its unbreathing state and then it expands again. Some people notice it by sensations around their nose, their nostrils, with a rush of air in through the nostrils and out. Some people notice it because their belly pushes out and in. or their shoulders raise up and down, or their whole body presses against the chair and the armrests as if it's getting bigger and then not bigger. 
particularly if someone has breath that's not um, easy, that's not compromised, that is compromised by um, a breathing illness, a lung illness, an allergy, It's even wise not to notice the breathing around the chest or the nose, but to notice the movements of the body. As it's less provocative of anxiety. The body is here. And moment to moment, registering the changes that reflect the fact that it's alive. So I'll sit quietly for a few minutes so that you can bring your attention to the breath arising and the breath passing away. And even experiment with thinking beginning and ending, beginning and ending. If the subject that we're investigating today is beginnings and endings, this is a reflection on beginnings and endings.
as you continue to sit, surely your awareness takes in, in addition to the physical changes moment to moment, this arises and passes away, this arises and passes away, various mental states that arise and pass away, feeling interested, feeling uninterested, finding it tedious, getting over finding it tedious, finding it interesting, getting over finding it interesting. This happens, that happens. Thinking about this afternoon, thinking about what happened yesterday. Thoughts arise. So as you pay attention to thoughts and feelings that arise, instead of particularly focusing on the thoughts and feelings that arise, perhaps notice they arise and then you notice them. And one of two things happens, either you notice them and they disappear because they're not what you meant to do now, or you notice them and they don't disappear because you get interested in them. And then eventually you say, whoops, not meditating. So now I'm going back again and feeling myself here now. So things happen and then other things happen and then other things happen. So really your meditative reflections can move from this is happening to really this is happening. This happens and then something else is happening and something else. Maybe your meditative reflections rather than being thinking or being irritated or being this or being that could be changing and changing something new, something new, because it's all changing moment to moment. Maybe that could be your focus.
in the next few minutes before we open our eyes. Allow your mind to reflect back over the last 20 some minutes that we've been sitting. And um, remember about, uh, or see if you can notice uh, changes throughout the time we sat in terms of awareness of this is pleasant and this is not so pleasant and this is not pleasant again, look at that. And now it's not so pleasant and then it's pleasant again. See if you can remember back to subtle changes and okay, this is okay. And when is that bell gonna ring? Or when is he over? How long are we sitting? See if you can reflect back on those changes that may have been quite subtle. And when you're ready, open your eyes and look around at people. I always like to look around at all the pages again. You might want to. I always um, think, but I might be imagining it, that people look different after they've been sitting for a while. They probably look different after I've been sitting for a while. They look more, more beautiful and more uniquely wonderful. I think it's everybody's, my eyes that change. Maybe everybody else's. Do you see that at all? Who sees that? Make a sign with your hand. Yes, you see that. <laughs> I expect to see it too, but maybe that's why I see it. So here we are again. Where to start? When I first began to practice in uh, a formal way in 1977, uh, there were formal Dharma talks as there are now on retreats. And one of the Dharma talks always early on was on the three factors of enlightenment. 
and uh, it remains as relevant now as it was 40 years ago, 40-some when I first heard it. And I didn't, and what I wanted to talk about just for a minute is how it's changed in my mind since then. The talk was called uh, The Three Factors of Enlightenment. And there were two main talks that were just proposed. One night we'd hear the four foundation, the four noble truths. Another night we'd hear the four foundations of mindfulness. And another night we predicted we hear the three factors of enlightenment. And they all in some way overlap with each other. And they're all, since the beginning, if you pick up an old Dharma book, they talk about the same things, they're foundational principles. And they're as relevant and true now as ever. But I remember hearing people talk about the three factors of enlightenment, uh, that things are impermanent, that uh, Anicca, the first one, things are impermanent, that suffering is ubiquitous, that uh, this, this incarnate existence, it, because of impermanence, we is, has loss and uh, the feelings of loss that built into it. And the third is that everything is related to everything else and interconnected with it as, um, as both a cause and, a, and an effect of so that really in some ways over the years I've come to understand all those three characteristics of experience as one characteristic. Everything is always changing and everything changes because of every change. And in the changing, the, uh, the ubiquitous undertone is every passing is a loss of something. Which sounds like it's always, it sounds like it's always glum. Maybe on some level I'm all of a sudden needing to say, well, it's not all terrible, it's actually quite liberating. But as, instead, a sweet story just popped into my mind five seconds ago of a friend of mine a couple of years ago getting ready for her daughter's wedding, which was looked forward to. She'd fallen in love with somebody, it was a great thing. Everything was wonderful. All the signs were auspicious. It continues to be a good life for them. And uh, it was a, an elaborate wedding with lots of people coming and lots of pre-wedding celebratings and getting ready for. And about a week before the wedding, the bride began to feel a sense of um, depression and loss and um, uh, when she thought about it and talked to her mother about it, the story that I heard, was she realized that the wedding was soon going to happen. And this marvelous time of wedding showers and shopping and looking at bouquets and picking out flowers and having... Um... Sorry about that. Sorry about it. I don't... Up by itself. All these preparations that she was so involved with and that was so wonderful would soon be over. And all of this big fuss where she's kind of uh, being uh, the princess for the week and, and having such a good time with all her friends and anticipating a wonderful life with her partner that she married and is having a wonderful life with. But that particular week of 
extraordinary celebration was going to be over. And she was, in advance of it being over, already missing it. And it's kind of a pre, pre, this is extraordinary and it's going to be gone. And uh, as I'm just, I'm telling it to you now, I think, I used to think, ah, uh, when the last time I told that story, I thought, ah, uh, but then I thought, you know, maybe it would be wonderful if every time we had a wonderful event, we were so present in it that we actually were there for its pressure, its, for its preciousness. That if I were 100% there for the birth of my grandchild, of my great-grandchild, and I wasn't, I, I hope I was, but I wasn't distracted with this or that, that be, I, I would be all the more present for it and all the more suffused with delight and thanksgiving and gratitude for that moment uh, because I wasn't distracted by anything because I knew that it wouldn't last. What if we always knew that this isn't gonna last so we paid such good attention that everything, be, that everything in the life becomes a sacred act. I'm imagining that you got excited when you walked out, well, we don't all live in California, but in California, stuff starts to bloom early. And there are things that I saw for the first time and they were happening just when the COVID was ending. And I really saw them and I really was so excited to be here to see them. I don't think it, it um, that uh, our, um, Emotions get jaded. I think maybe they get more liberated to be full and embodied if we know that it's temporal. So really what I want to talk about and I'm talking about for today and other days is impermanence in the sense of really recognizing temporality. One of my teachers at one point, I can't remember what it was that was going on Maybe I hadn't been paying good attention. Maybe I had. I, I don't actually remember. But I maybe probably more that I wasn't paying. I was. I was uh, dedicating too much time to hassling in my mind about something or rather that wasn't. That I wasn't being effective in. I don't remember. But I remember this particular teacher saying to me, "It's your life, Sylvia. Don't miss it." And I thought, I remember that. Whatever it was, it doesn't even matter. You know, you could change the story. It could have been this or that. It's your life, Sylvia. Don't miss it. Be there for it. It's an amazing thing to be fully there for a life. Just this morning, I got my this. I keep looking at my notes because I wrote I wrote this some days ago. I've been thinking about it, and then I said, "We'll I have to talk about this and that and that and that and that." So it kept getting annotated. This morning I got up and I thought, for some reason the expression, there's no time like the present, came in my mind this morning. And then I thought to myself, how many people have said that? Well, there's no time like the present to do this or that or the other thing. But I thought, if I change the emphasis on words, there is no time but the present. No time but the present. Everything else is a conjecture. The future is a conjecture. The future is maybe if I go to sleep and get up and go to sleep and get up enough more times, I'll suddenly find myself, whoops, I'm in the future. But I, I already find myself every day, whoops, in the future uh, in, this, in this time of my life. And I think, how did I get here? 
uh, for a long time when I was young because I, I, uh, I, I uh, was moved ahead a few grades in the early grades because my parents were both literate and I was an only child and I could read and do those things early. So I ended up in middle school and all my other schooling was much younger than other people. I was always the youngest person in the class. And now I'm always the oldest person in any group that, I, that I'm in. And how did that happen? And what happened to all those years in between? And I have piles of journals and bookshelves full of photographs that will tell me actually if I look in them where I was and what I did. But it's irrelevant. They could not be there or be there. But somehow all of a sudden you wake up and you're, whoops, 85 years old. How did I get here? I don't know. Just happened. Um, I, um, and what's important or what used to be so important. That's one of the lessons I think that I'm learning. That what used to seem so important isn't so important. I remembered again this morning as I was putting this together. Many years ago, my husband and I went to a, uh, a conference of uh, a psychoanalytic, international psychoanalytic conference. My husband was a psychoanalyst in uh, Vienna. And um, it was very exciting for me and for him because we were relatively young in our, maybe uh, in our early thirties at that time. And, um, at the end of a day of meetings, we went uh, in a big hotel where there were meetings going. We went down to the parking level and were waiting for our car to get delivered. It was where you left or went out in the street. And a man named Rene Spitz came down. He had been a speaker at one of these conferences. Rene Spitz died in 1970. He was born, I looked it up this morning, something like 19. 1882 or something. And so he was an old man and he died a few years after we met him. And he was leaving the conference by himself and coming down to get a taxi cab to go to his home. And we offered him a ride. Um, and uh, so we got in a car together. And uh, so we talked to him on the way to his, wherever we dropped him off. And uh, Rene Spitz was speaking at that conference. He was renowned at the time uh, for his work on uh, the importance of early infancy contact with parents, that children in, in those days that were orphaned for some reason or other because their mother died or couldn't take care of them and were put in large facilities for infants, orphanages, and put in cribs and fed, and fed food on a regular basis in large amounts did not thrive. Uh, miasmas is I think what they call that condition, failure to thrive. And he was a psychoanalyst, a psychiatrist in those days. And he did the groundwork work on the importance in early infancy of contact with the caring parent and um, that really, in addition to feeding a child and diapering it and keeping it safe, you really need to talk to it and hold it and look at it and play with it and laugh with it 
and hold it against your chest so that it could feel your heart beating and all those things that people now do. But at the time, you know, I guess the need was for places to keep these children that had no way to keep them. And they were keeping them on a warehousing guide. Anyway, lots of them were not only failing to thrive, but failing to live. There was an inordinate amount of infant death. So he wrote the groundbreaking things on early mother-child bonding and how important it is for health. It was a major thing in psychotherapy. So we drove him to wherever it was he was going. And after, and on the way, we said to him, uh, one of us, Dr. Dr. Spitz, what are you doing these days? Because now he's an old man and he's not working uh, so much. And he said, oh, I'm writing. I'm working on finishing up my writings because I have a deadline to meet. He said, in both sense of the word. And then we got to his place and he got out. So we assumed that that deadline meant he had a manuscript deadline, but also his body had a deadline. He was quite old and he died not that long afterwards. And so that has to be 50 years ago and around that, maybe a little bit more, but it made such an impression on my mind, both because uh, of his dedication and of his determination to be contributing for as long as he could, but also because of the fact that if you say Renee Spitz to people these days, nobody knows who he was. Uh, did you know how many people knew, this is not meant to be embarrassing, how many people did not know what the groundwork work of Renaissance did not know? Mostly, you know, and at that point he made such a difference. The other story, which is also sweeter, uh, a little bit sweeter just to tell, uh, I'm pretty sure everybody heard of Ram Dass, everybody knows Baba Ram Dass. Did everybody know Ram Dass, Baba Ram Dass, who knew? that name. He wrote Be Here Now, which was a huge bestseller over all the years and many other things. And he died about two years ago, um, uh, 90-ish, 90-ish. Uh, and, uh, but he had a stroke, a major stroke in 1995, uh, and then lived on until now. But before he had the stroke, he was still able-bodied. And we had the pleasure, my, my husband and I, of knowing him. And he used to come to our house once a month and we played music together. We were all very amateur musicians. None of us would play in a public place with other people, not each other. But he played cello and Simone and I both played violin. And he'd come over and we'd play trios together. And then we'd eat dinner together. It was great. And uh, we were talking about that that situation of, you know, you get irrelevant soon. And he said, you know, sometimes uh, he was also a golfer. And he said, some days, you know, when the, the day is nice and I'm not with anybody, I go out to a golf course, the golf course out in Sauerfell. And he said, uh, I arrive by myself. And often there's three people about to tee off and they suggest I join that group. He says, so I join a group and they all welcome me. And I say, my name is Ram Das. And they say, hi, Ron. And uh, uh, because they hear it as that. And we, if somebody said, me, if somebody said, my name is Ram Das, I said, wow, are you the Ram Das? Da, 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 da. So they say, I'm Ram Das. 
oh, hi, Ron. And they go on and play. He said, you know, I'm already out. Of, I'm not, you know, I'm still here. I'm not even dead yet. I'm not even that old yet. And the big breakthrough, Ramdas has gone. Sick transit Gloria, my father used to say all the time. My father had studied Latin, I think, in high school. He didn't. He wasn't well-versed in it, but he said a few things that I remembered until now. And one of that means, you know, that fame does not last very long. or Nothing lasts very long, which is, in a certain sense, the redemptive thing about impermanence. I didn't even get up to why I'm going, why I'm determined to talk about this today. So maybe I'll do that first, and then I'll come to the story I was just about to launch into. Uh, I made that determination because it's been on my mind one particular line of the Buddha. If someone said, what did the Buddha say of all his great things that he said? What line is your favorite line? And this might change over time, but my favorite line as of now is anyone who understands impermanence ceases to be contentious. Anyone who understands impermanence ceases to be contentious. It's from the Dhammapada, which is the sayings of the Buddha. And as I've been mulling that over in my mind, not this week, but this last year, it, it has functioned in a way, uh, now that I think of it, its primary function in me is to take the wind out of my sails when I'm just about to get annoyed at somebody or I'm starting to get annoyed at somebody. And my mind is starting to make a story about I won't be so nice to them or I'll fix them or I'll just tell so-and-so what somebody said about All that contention, anyone who recognizes impermanence ceases to be contentious on every level. I'm, I want to use it for a while for a koan. And I, I think I said earlier today uh, that a version of that, transient, are all conditioned things, is the next to the last sentence that the Buddha is said to have said, everything passes. Impermanence is true. And what he said after that, Move, meet the future. Well, I, I have changed it to meet the future with confidence. Uh, the last translation that I liked about it is move into the future with confidence. But I decided I was going to say meet the future with confidence because I don't think we move into the future. I think the future arrives. We keep getting up in the morning and it's the future and that we don't have to go anywhere. We just stay here. And his every day is the future. And, it, and we have a possibility of meeting it. Well, no, we have the imperative to meet it. <laughs> we can't do anything about other than meet it. So we might as well meet it with confidence. I don't have it right in front of me, but maybe Toland will remember to tell me or somebody will uh, about reading The Guest House by Rumi next time that we're together. Or Toland will put in the chat The Guest House by Rumi. I don't know any Dharma teacher that has not read The Guest House by Rumi to, uh, in a Dharma talk, at least sometimes. 
in essence, he says, every morning you open the door and there's something else there, uh, uh, an old bad memory, uh, something that, ah, uh, that's here. He says, let it in and let it stay as long as it wants and treat it with respect and it'll leave. This future keeps meeting us. And really the only option we have is it certainly can't change the future and we can meet it with respect and with balance, and it's okay. So I don't want to say move into the future with confidence. I want to say, um, greet it, meet it with confidence. So now when it's almost the end of, no, I'm going to talk a little bit more, a little bit longer. And then after a little bit longer, maybe, well, we'll see how much longer, because now I realize I have the whole next week. And this is the most important topic on my mind these days. I'll talk about why did I choose this particular topic? Um, because this has come up in my mind and in the minds of many other people recently who have been talking to me. It looks like the pandemic in this country, at least, is subsiding. And that we're getting used to uh, being not at home, being used to meeting other people. I haven't so far eaten indoors in a restaurant with people. But last week I was teaching in Mexico in a health resort right over the border in Mexico. And everybody there was vaccinated. You had to show vaccination proof to get there. And I was teaching there, so I was there for two weeks. And we wore masks outside because the um, the people in the town around who do much of the maintenance work and uh, the administrative work there, they're not all vaccinated and everybody is masked and we are all masked, except when you, strangely, when you go in a dining room and eat what you can't eat with a mask on, everybody takes off their mask. So all of a sudden I'm sitting in a room with a hundred people space but not incredibly distant from each other, with people looking like regular people and talking to each other and eating and laughing and talking. And I realized the first day it felt a little peculiar and then it didn't feel peculiar and then it felt less peculiar. And I thought, oh, I guess we are in the next phase. And the thing that people kept bringing up with me in conversation Maybe, maybe I sway the conversation that way. I don't know. Probably. <laughs> I'm not sure. But I keep having this feeling of phew, you know, like we just dodged a tremendous bullet. First of all, a half a million people didn't dodge that bullet in the United States. A half a million people in the United States. More now, I think. The, the number is slightly more than 500,000, I think. 500,000 people, let's say, died in the United States from COVID. They are still dying in some places. It's not altogether finished. But it seems like it might be finishing. Uh, my, uh, my uncle, who died 20 years ago, uh, was alive in the 1918-1919 flu. And his father came home from work one day and said, I don't feel well. And the next day was dead. And uh, 
And so that when our pandemic started, I had the, the um, I had two things. First of all, I had the memory of Uncle Irving, who I knew, and I knew the stories of him having to stop school and take over his father's running a kind of a 7-Eleven under the uh, under the elevated uh, train tracks in New York City with his mother to support his two younger brothers because his father had died. The hard times in that pandemic. But so I knew about pandemics and I also knew that Uncle Irvin survived them. So that was kind of, I think that was helpful. I knew that pandemics ended. He was Uncle Irving who went on to live 85 years. I think every piece of knowledge that goes, I don't call it, yeah, that's knowledge. It doesn't always translate to wisdom, but if I'm if I'm really curious and interested, it stays in there. It's a little bit reassuring that my family has been in pandemics, okay. But it looks like this one is finishing. And I have a feeling about it that even though I personally do not know anybody who died, I know people who are personally sick, but I don't know anybody personally who died. Um, I don't even know anybody personally who had somebody who died. But there are a half a million families in the United States that had somebody die. That's a big number of people. It's a big number of people. I'm always just astounded by that. And what I'm astounded by, and this is what people kept bringing up with me, is I have a little bit of a feeling that it's like, perhaps it's analogous to, what if a year and a half ago, somebody said, alert, citizens of the United of, of the world, there's a meteor out in space that's traveling in a course that it looks like it's going to come towards our planet and uh, the end of uh, 2019, beginning of 2020. It's aiming here. And if it aims a little bit one degree further this way or that way, it could demolish the whole planet Earth. But we know it's coming in somewhere. Uh, what if what if everybody knew that? And here came this meteor through space, and it came close, but it just miraculously, and everybody got really worried about it. everybody could die, and it zoomed right by on the limit of where it didn't touch the atmosphere of our solar system. Zoom by. And we, we would all, I think, I said, wow, that was a close shave. We could have just all been decimated. So wait a minute, get a grip. You know, we are really not in charge of our destiny. Something could happen and we could all be destroyed. Phew, we didn't. Thank goodness. Let's get a grip now. Let's all turn around and say, why? Since life is so precious to all of us and we don't want anybody to die, ourselves or our adversaries, nobody, life is precious. Nor do we want this planet to die, which it's looking like it's doing. So now that we had this wake up call, it wasn't a meteor, it was a big pandemic. The variants of which are still going around. We had this big wake up call. Let's just take a minute, everybody. Let's stand up and take a breath and let's make a decision that we're canceling all further animosities 
all past animosities. And we are realizing we are living on a small planet. The thing that the COVID did, I think, is it convinced everybody that there's no place to hide. It's a very small planet. And somebody gets on a train somewhere, goes someplace else, and all of a sudden the whole city is sick and dying. Somebody goes somewhere and whole populations die. Say, okay, wow, get a grip. Now here we are, phew, it's passing by. Let's not trouble each other with squabbling. Let's take care of each other. That we, that how come we, we don't come away with the lesson that life is precious and we're all vulnerable. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know. How come we didn't wake up and say finished? All the wars finished, all the munitions manufacturing, all the gun manufacturing finished. Let's stop killing each other. So I have been thinking that. And people have been thinking that because they're asking me that. What do you think? Because we're all reveling in the fact that there we are sitting in a dining room eating food without a mask and enjoying each other. We did a few, that meteor passed. Why didn't everybody get changed? So the, the answer to that question is, I don't know. And it's way too big of a question and way too nuanced. And the best philosophers in the world are thinking about it now. But what can I take away from it that's going to make a difference for me? I really am touched by the idea that Anyone who gets impermanence ceases to be contentious. I feel a little bit like um, my own experience. Well, I, I think many of you, probably most of you know that my husband of 66 years died in February, not of COVID. He died of non-smokers, saw a small cell lung cancer. But it doesn't matter what he died of. Just we were together for 69 years as best friends. And now he's not here. Um, so uh, during that whole time, I was noticing this big COVID um, crisis and potential trauma for everybody unfolding outside. And our personal, not so much a crisis, because um, people get sick. And he was, he just had his 89th birthday before he died. So he was, he had lived to the fullness of years and was grateful for his life and all of that. But I, I found that during the whole year, just the alarm about the COVID for everybody else and the high heightened understanding I was having of the preciousness of a life. Everybody's life is precious to somebody. And when we think about people whose lives aren't precious to anybody, we feel terrible. See, I, I do anyway. You see people living on the side of a highway or down an alley, no one taking care of them. Feel, you know, They're also alive. I wish we had a, a social structure that could take care of them. So how come we didn't all come away from that saying, let's all cooperate, let's stop killing each other. Like when you have a crisis and you say all hands on deck, why aren't all hands on deck cooperating? 
So I don't know the answer to that, but but that was really what was on my mind to talk about. And maybe it's the only thing to talk about. But I also want to read you the beginning, at least the beginning of um, Norman's book. I'm so glad. Whoops. I just managed to click off my picture so I can't see anybody. I hope you can still hear me. Let's just do this. Uh, oh, yeah, there you are. So, <laughs> so I'm assuming there I am. And there you are. So I'm assuming you can hear me still. Tell me if you can. Yeah, okay, good. That's, that's a sort of alarming thing when you suddenly the whole picture disappears. This is the beginning of Norman's book, which I'm very grateful to because I don't have to write another book. And, <laughs> and I love it. He's a, such a beautiful writer. When, I, when you greet me, I bow. I'll read you a little bit. Um, I hope you like this. This is from the kind of the beginning. It maybe is the first essay. And it's called The Notes on the Joy and Catastrophe of Relationship. And uh, he's talking about um, his own beginning, his Zen practice 50 years ago. He says, I was a callow and stubborn and arrogant student of literature philosophy. Um, I was on a quest. He said, the reason that I was so driven in that quest was I was in great pain. And then he goes on to say, unlike so many people I've met over the years, nearly everyone, I had no good reason for my pain. I'd had a modest yet a privileged life. My parents were middle-class people. We had a comfortable life. They loved me. They took good care of me. Nothing went wrong. But he said, also, I... Um, they provided a good home for me. I couldn't blame my parents, my life. Uh, it, I, it was the, perhaps it was the times, the horrible Vietnam War, which I was about to be drafted into, though as it turned out, I was not. And fear of atom bombs and during the Cold War and all of that. And then he said, also ruining my life were the time question and the death question that obsessed me, it would not let me rest. I took them quite personally and desperately. In that desperation, I stumbled into Zen, looking for, I suppose, something like metaphysical relief. So it's quite surprising that the opening section of this book, its bedrock, is about relationship. Because what I have, it's called Notes on the Joy and Catastrophe of Relationship. I've discovered after many decades of Zen Buddhist practice, is that religious life isn't about truth as much as it is about relationship, or that perhaps truth and relationship are one and the same. In other words, from the Zen point of view of Zen practice, relationship isn't what we normally think. People get together, like each other, make a life. Relationship is not something that happens or doesn't happen in a life. It is life. It's life's truest truth. We live in relation to other human beings, of course, but how and in what depth? But we also live in we also live in relation to ourselves, to our own thoughts and feelings, to our body, to our breath. We live in relation to the whole of the physical world. We pick things up, we put them down. We see the sky and the sea, we hear the waves and birds. We taste and smell and touch and are touched. 
These things make us what we are. We are nothing without them. Understanding this, fully appreciating it is at its depths, goes to the heart of Zen practice. None of this, as it turns out, is metaphysical. It's exactly the opposite of metaphysical. It is being alive as best you can in the midst of every relationship, moment after moment, after moment, after moment. So that actually I wrote in the margin right there because it popped into my mind. My teacher saying to me, it's your life, Sylvia, don't miss it. So how to live in relationship to the moment. It doesn't mean that every moment is the same great, but every moment is there to be responded to. We could be alive. You know, the, there was a period of time where I thought every new Dharma book that was getting published was called Awakening. Awakening to this, awakening to that, awakening to love, awakening to your heart, awakening the senses. But the whole thing is to wake up, not to go through life stuporously, not stupidly, stupor, stuporously distracted by everything. I met a, um, I met a, um, a Catholic uh, priest, um, a man who, at the time at least, this is some years ago, was president of the International Association of Catholic Contemplatives, something like that. Um, he was a priest and um, uh, a teacher and, and a Catholic. And uh, we were at an interfaith ca uh, conference teaching each of us. And he was saying that from his point of view, his, as his theology was that the uh, meaning of the definition of sin is distraction, to be distracted, to not fully inhabit this life, to not take it on and not live it. And I think that, I think, you know, um, I think about, it used to be a time when I had a, a, a sensitivity about a particular phrase, I wouldn't like it when people said, um, my plane was, uh, had to have repairs in Chicago, it didn't take off on time. So I had a few hours to kill in the airport. And it just used to hurt me so much. And I think it, it, it uh, I don't know, maybe just because of the phraseology, because I, I remember thinking, you don't have a minute to lose, you know? You could sit in the in the Chicago airport. I think I wrote different stories about it at the time. You could sit in the Chicago airport and see all the people coming and going and think everybody's got, nobody is there in the Chicago airport by accident. You don't find yourself at a boarding gate by accident. You're either going somewhere or coming home and you went for a reason and you're coming for a reason. And it was either a happy reason or not a happy reason but something's going on in your life. And I could sit there and wish well, may whatever you're doing, wherever you're going, may it work out all right, may you be doing all right. I wanna read you one more thing and then I wanna do a breakout group. I have a pile of stuff that I'm not gonna to get to, but that's all right. I'm so happy that I don't have to rush myself. I didn't know this and Norman has written an old, how many people know the story of the Buddha was born as a prince in a family where one night he got up and he went out of the 
he was already grown up and married and had a child and he went out and he saw three sites, sites of old age, sickness and death. And it so shocked him because he'd never seen that before. And he saw a fourth site that was a monk, uh, uh, serene of visage uh, that gave him the message that you could in fact say, life is about old age. If you make it to old age, that's already a question. But if you make it, to, eventually everybody gets old and gets sick and dies, or they get old and die, or they die peremptorily before that. But the whole thing is finite, and he sees that. And here's this monk who presumably knows that, and it's all right with him. His visage is serene. And it's supposed to say to you that the Buddha-to-be at that point decided, I have to figure out how he's all right with the vicissitudes of life. But there's a whole other story. From, a, from the same sources. It's just an alternative story. And it's nice, so that's why I want to read it to you. In the, this is a canonical story. I'm not making it up. Here it is. In the middle of the night, Sid Arthur prepares to leave the palace. But as he passes his wife, Yasidhara's room, and sees a sleeping figure, he's overcome by her beauty and his love for her. He can't leave. He goes to her without telling her of his resolve, and they make love, conceiving their only child. Yosidhara senses Arthur's impending distance. Lord, she says, wherever you go, take me with you. So be it, he replies, wherever I go, I will take you. And by the morning, he was gone. By that night, from that night on, Gautama's spiritual quest is mirrored by the course of Yosidhara's pregnancy. Both go on for six years and culminate during the same faithful night, fateful night. Both Gautama at Siddhartha Gautama is the born name of Buddha, and Yosidhara, in their different circumstances, practice austerities, eating only one sesame seed a day, one grain of rice, one pod of seeds a day. And as for both, the period of asceticism is grim and unsuccessful. Gautama nearly dies, and Yosudhara almost loses the child. When Gautama accepts solid food again, Yosudhara does too, and the child is saved. Gautama sits under the Bodhi tree full of strength and determination. Yosudhara enters labor. Gautama is then tempted by Mara, the, um, the personification of distractions. And receives, she re is tempted by Mara while Yosidhara in the palace receives a message from Mara who tells her that her husband has died. And she is overcome by grief and again almost loses the child. But at the moment when the former prince is about to enter enlightenment, Yosidhara Here's the truth, recovers and gives birth to their son, Rahula, at the eclipse of the moon. I think that's a beautiful story, don't you? I think, it, I think on many levels, I think it suggests that, uh, that there are different paths. You could do the path, the householder path and come to enlightenment. You could do the, the wandering monk path and come to enlightenment. Uh, theirs is really a path of
fidelity on a certain level to each other. Maybe that's the message of the story. But that's the whole story. And then Norman goes on and his next paragraph starts with the line, being human is a tough proposition. So I want to stop here for a minute because I want us to be in groups. Being hu human is a tough <clears throat> proposition is a um, contemporary um, way of saying the first noble truth, which is life comes with pain and difficulty. Being human is a tough proposition. My grandfather, who could not read in any language, uh, but was a very kind and thoughtful man, would say when terrible things happened in the family, <coughs> and he had to deal with them, he would say, including the birth of my mother, the death of my mother, his, his eldest daughter, which was terrible for him. He said, um, it's very hard to be a person. It's very hard to be a person. And it was in, included in that was the fact that the word he used, he said, he, he said that in Yiddish, but the word for person that he used, which was really, it's very hard to be a decent person, very hard to be a decent person and not be overtaken by your passions. So I want for us to, for, for a couple of reasons to be able to talk to each other because I've talked a lot um, because I want you to know who else is here because if we were in a room together, which at some point we might be, we would have the pleasure of hearing each other's voices And I want, and we're going to be in groups of uh, probably five people. And I, I really urge you to go. Sometimes people are hesitant about being in groups because they don't like so much to talk to other people that they don't know spontaneously. You don't have to talk. You can just say, I came to listen. But I hope you'll go. And I hope that you'll talk about your response to some of the things that I've said. And uh, like maybe that question about, how come we didn't all wake up? What's going to cause us to wake up? Or maybe it's going to be uh, your own discussion of some of the things that were moments of wake up for you, where you thought, whoa, now I really get it about things change. And I'd like you in that five, in that, in that period of time that you're together, uh, to think about what questions you have about what I just said. And maybe the four of them, four of you, five of you, can formulate one question and write it in the chat for Toland. Toland will probably, will put you in a group and she'll reactivate uh, the, the chat and she'll remind you when it's time to write the question. So write a question about something you thought, but as a group, we all wanted to say, or we all wanted to ask. That's it. We all wanted to say, or we all wanted to ask. And do it now, so we have a chance to come back together. And I'll just leave this big pile of things to talk about next week. There's nothing else to talk about. This is it. So go, have a good time. How long would you like them to go for, Sylvia? 10 minutes? 10 minutes, we'll be back at a quarter to. All right, I'll open up the rooms now. 
Well, I have the same pleasure now of seeing people pop back. And look around. I'll look at the chat and see what the questions are. Not seeing it. All right. Um, I got I've gotten some of they think they directly messaged me the question. So I'll read them out to you, Sylvia. Okay, great, great, great. All right. So the first question is how do we incorporate relationship to action towards healing the world, in particular climate change? Read that again. How do we incorporate relationship? towards action, I mean, to action towards healing the world. So how can we use relationship as a tool towards healing the world? Um, the, the issue that they're thinking about particularly is climate change. So how does relationship help us heal the world? You know, um, um, this is a sort of a strange answer because I'm not gonna say the answer is, the, the, because the preview to the answer is not relationship that be, before working with anybody anywhere, if I am sure that I am in a good relationship with my own heart at that point, that I am meeting uh, one of my one of my meditation slogans, one of my meditation instructions is, "May I meet this moment fully? May I meet it as a friend? May I meet everything as a friend? May I meet this moment without contentious may it, contention." May I meet it as a friend? So I think that in going to thinking about climate change, thinking about uh, political decisions, thinking about any kind of issue that's dear to all of us, that uh, has the possibility of frightening us if it doesn't go the way we think it ought to go and, and are really frightening situations. It's not a it's not a mistake to be concerned to be able to say to oneself I really am frightened so I want very much not to meet the people that I work with in this as my enemies and uh, they are people who think differently and may I meet them in friendship so that we can work together I am very very much um, uh, uh, thinking these days about a poem that I'm pretty sure a poem line that I'm pretty sure I read to all of you just a few weeks ago when I was here. It's the slogan from the National Poetry Association that's, that has as a rhyme of it. I lean into the rhythm of your heart to see where it will take us. The line that comes before that is, there is nowhere else I want to be but here. And if I'm here, I lean into the rhythm of your heart to see where it will take us. I want to be able to keep people from being my enemies, to be my potential collaborators. And I can do that by making myself open to collaboration. So that's a, I don't want that to stand pie in the sky. It's not easy, but especially when people are doing things that are scary. Ask me another question. All right, the next question is, how to maintain equanimity in the face of such a troubled world to avoid getting caught in so many difficulties? 
Oh, so that's another iteration of this. That, um, oh, you know what? I'm going to also make a note for myself about talking about equanimity. Uh, the next, the, uh, to start the next, our next class next week, because the best definition of it uh, is from uh, my friend uh, Gil Franzdahl, where he says that equanimity is the ability to say, this is what's happening now. Let's see what happens next, which is in my mind another, it was so soothing for me to hear him say that, because when I heard that the first time, I thought, oh yeah, that reminds me, there is a next. It doesn't have to happen the second. There's a next. I remember Barack Obama in his final speech before he left office said, nothing is the end, of, the end of the world until the end of the world. And I say that to myself frequently to remind myself of that. So it, I, I've been teaching all over that another, um, another, a synonym for wisdom is patience. That, uh, that, uh, when something, uh oh, say, so just wait a minute, let's see about this and let's see if I can make my best self present in this moment and then see what, how I can move and what to do. So I, I think that, uh, something's happening. You take a breath in and say, it's what's happening now. Let's see what happens next and let's see if I can put my mind together so I can meet it with compassion. May I meet this next moment about compassion? And someone, Carol, asked, what did you say about distraction? I said that it was remarkable to me that this particular Catholic priest who is himself a contemplative, does some kind of contemplative practice, other than his prayer practice, I'm sure, surprised me by not saying what I thought would be a classical definition of sin, but saying that the really the overall definition of sin is not paying attention, is distraction. And that what we are called upon to do is to pay really good attention, which is really what mindfulness is. I'm hopeful that someday we change the name of mindfulness meditation to paying careful attention meditation, or maybe even better to compassion meditation. We spend pay very careful attention. We begin to see that really we're doing terrible things to ourselves and other people. And we'll really be able to see that people are suffering all over the place. And we really would be spontaneously moved to compassion. I want to call, call it compassion uh, meditation. Maybe in my lifetime, maybe in the next one, but mindfulness is an awkward word, I think. And it's not the best translation from Polly, I think. But anyway, that's another story. So, okay, ask me another question. How do we reconcile knowing that every moment is precious with the urge for certain things to end or other things to begin? I think it's gonna turn out to be the answer to everything is a little bit patience. Um, When you think about the, you know, the desire for something to begin, you know, I, I think again they are all going to turn out to be synonyms of wisdom. Uh, that one of the ways that I think of that patience is a manifestation. One of the ways in which patience is a manifestation of wisdom 
is we want so much to be happening now, but it's not. To be able to say, it's just not happening now, but things change and may it happen soon. Really, may, I, I was telling somebody the other day that any sentence gets turned into a blessing by putting may in front of it. May I have the capacity to wait for this to happen. May I have the capacity capacity to endure this discomfort. May I have the capacity to keep seeing clearly under these confusing circumstances. It, you know, the, the Buddha's instruction is that um, a clear mind is a possibility. It's not even a happy mind. Well, I think he said that as well, but the happiness that comes from recognizing that the world couldn't be other now, that really it's doing what it's doing. And the happiness of not having any antagonism in the mind, having nothing but compassion in the mind. But short of that, for myself to be able to say, whatever it is that I am needing to endure now is not going to happen forever. And I can do it. What else, Dylan? All right. Um, the next question is... Um... Should one savor the moment from a perspective of its transience and impermanence? Or should one savor the moment simply because it is precious in and of itself? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Both. I mean, we don't want to be, uh, I, of course, we want to be completely present to savoring a moment. And just enjoy it. And I say, this is, this, this is the best strawberry shortcake I ever had in my whole life. Um, uh, and period, full stop. And just taste it and love it. I had one teacher, though, uh, that said a long time ago, when you have a completely transcendent, wonderful moment, maybe transcendent is the wrong word, you have a wonderful moment and you're aware that you are suffused with the pleasure of being alive for this moment, at least. To notice that and make a deposit in the um, bank account of your mind so that at some time in the future, when you really could use a small pick-me-up, when things are not good, when maybe you're in some weakened state or whatever, that you could go back to your bank account and take out you know, something that you've deposited there a long time ago and just look at it again. So both and, both and. Both. Okay, tell them what else. Um, why approach impermanence with confidence? I suppose that means looking back to the, the line of step into step into the future with confidence, because uh, why not? You know, there's a there's the um, uh, there's a story about the the Buddha uh, uh, on the night of his enlightenment, sitting down and saying, "Okay," with a resolve that says, "Okay, I'm not going to get up until I'm fully enlightened." And when you tell that story from that particular version of the story. You put your hand on the ground and you say, put his hand on the ground as to say, listen, Mara, you're trying to distract me there, but I have a right to be here. And you put your hand on the ground, that's it. I have a right to be here. 
And um, I, I sometimes teach, and I tell that story about sitting down. Sometimes when we were in the, in the um, habit of a sitting practice, we come to a time in the day or whenever when we're going to sit down and do our contemplative practice. And uh, mostly we say, oh, okay, it's time to meditate, or I forgot to meditate earlier, okay, I'm sitting down. And it becomes, oh, oh, like, you know, brushing the teeth or whatever. It's just another thing that I do every day because it's good for me. And say, what if you sat down and every time you sat down, you put your hand on the ground or on the table next to you, you said, I'm not getting up until I'm enlightened. Maybe it'd be the same 20 minutes, but maybe your mind would be so um, uh, awakened by the possibility of that, which the Buddha said there is a possibility that you would sit those 20 minutes with such awakened awareness that new um, insights would arise in your mind and you really would feel more liberated internally. So I say to classes from time to time, when I sit down, I put my fingers down sometimes, not always, as if to say, uh, I'm not getting up until I'm enlightened. And normally when I say that to a class full of people, they laugh, they laugh. <laughs> Like it's an arrogant thing to say, like, what, do you really think you're the Buddha or you really can do that kind of a thing? No, I don't really think I'm the Buddha, but why not do that? Why not sit down with confidence? It's a, it's a possibility. I wouldn't be doing this. Nobody would be doing this unless they thought that wisdom accrues and, uh, and, and, and peace is its fruition. The peace that this is... Not the piece that, that says I'm at peace because everything is fine in the world just as I needed it to be. But the piece that says this is what's happening because at this point it can't be otherwise in the world. The factors that have made the commotion in the world now what it is are all made already. The world is how it is because of everything everyone has done. And if the world's going to change, it's going to be because of everything that people will do in time to save it and I could be one of those people and may my may my practice be uh for the benefit of relieving suffering for all beings why not do that that's not egotistical that's like functional that's like wise why not make the most auspicious conditions for practice may the most but, but I see that we have to end do we have a lot of more questions or that was it um, we have, let me just look, we have two more questions. Tell me both and I'll see if I can do them together. Okay. The first one is, okay. Um, Sophia says a question, uh, cannot, uh, cannot I deeply take and enjoy and savor this moment and then this moment and at the same time, see them as precious for what they are and not see them as precious because they are temporal and impermanent. They are precious because of what they are and they're temporal and impermanent. That's what makes the, those precious moments so poignant. No, they are both. All right. And then the next question is, how do you share your awareness of the awakening or growing with people who are not able to experience awareness due to, for example, difficult financial circumstances? Is practicing kindness in daily life a start? Yes, yes. And there's a big long answer to that, which I'll do. I was just now writing down, we're gonna start with economic, 
equanimity and kindness next week. So thank you very, very much to everybody who went in a group and who submitted a question. I'm delighted to be here. I'm delighted to be back next week. Please all come. And may all of us take whatever uplift and whatever understanding we've taken from this morning into our lives with us for the rest of this day and the days to come so that we are lifted up by the possibility of freedom and the possibility of a contented mind and that we can share that with everyone that we meet. And may we dedicate all of our practice for the well-being of all beings everywhere. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.